like our owl? How many questions does it usually take to spot? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of Orc. Your models are screaming the shit. Because you've never seen a miracle. You imagined it was you. Oh, you did. You did. We all wish it was us. That's why we believe. All the best memories are hers. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host... Patrick Green, back from the dead, or back from the land of uh, people COVID. having COVID and <laughs> being very tired. But it's okay. Everybody's doing great. We're coming out of this, you know, you guys negative phase now? And- Everyone's testing negative? Negative? Kind of. The kids are, the kids are, they're back at school. Micah is uh, is still working through it, but she's doing great. She's working from home right now. So trying to enjoy that time together. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where we have done everything right for two years and uh, it got in through a kindergarten exposure and, mm. uh, you know, but we're all vaccinated and we're happy about it. And I I, I have to say, I am, uh, I was so jealous listening to the episode that you guys did because it was such a great conversation and having Christian on was, was amazing. So what we're going to do just, you know, while I'm talking about it is we're going to come back and have a round table, hopefully with Christian and Peter, maybe Micah as well back again uh, to talk about the costumes more broadly across the two films. But as I was listening to it, uh, you know, I was like, I, I feel like we need to jump on the 2049 conversation and get mm-hmm. that started because it's so aesthetically different and presents such interest and contrast. So I was like, Jamie, let's like do a little catch-up episode today, talk about 2049, revisit some of the things that came up in that previous episode, and then do a bigger conversation next about the costumes and how it evolves over the whole the whole filmic universe. But anyway, how are you, my friend? I am well. I, as you know, but our listeners will know, I am in the, on the East Coast right now, and I'm visiting my best friend, Kathy, who I've known for 18 years. And uh, I'll be seeing you in a few days. Uh, and we're going to be hanging out, getting drunk, getting shit. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully uh, sledding. Some, Hopefully drunk sledding. sledding. Recording hoping, some yeah. episodes. I'll be making some Chicago-style pizza for the greens. Um, so I'm excited to be here. I'm working remote for these two weeks. Um, yeah, it's great. It's weird being back. I haven't seen snow since I was in England because it snowed like the last day that I was there. Um, but yeah, doing well. You know, uh, I have to say, as we're recording this, it just started snowing here on really? the fair shores of the tri-state area. Mm. Yeah. So uh, it's coming. Oh, okay. Lord, it's coming. <laughs> it's going to be a snowy couple of days. Uh, so I want to congratulate you again on a really terrific kickoff episode with the costuming. You know, um, before that was recorded, you know, I was mentioning our situation here and, and also that, uh, you know, I'm not like a costume aficionado in the same way, especially that Christian, as he's such mm-hmm. an expert. But also, you know, you, you and Peter, you have, I think, maybe more 
pre preformed opinions about it. It might be something that you think about more than I do, because for me, I'm so distracted by so many other things going on. And I sort of have to pick and choose what I'm really thinking deeply about when I'm watching these films. But listening to the episode, uh, it helped me realize a number of things about why the costumes work so well in Blade Runner. And, and just to revisit a couple of those for those who haven't, you know, gone back and listened to the episode in a while. Uh, part of it is just the fact that you can freeze like any moment of any scene and look in the background. And if there are other people in the background, they are dressed in such idiosyncratic, amazing ways mm -hmm. that they, it stands on its own as a real lived in environment. And I'm glad that you guys articulated that when we have, for example, the live event uh, that we did in Los Angeles, you know, a lot of people came in costume mm -hmm. and I wasn't surprised to see that a lot of the costumes were background characters because they're iconic in their own right. Of course, we had Rick come dressed as a rice vendor. We had other people come dressed as, you know, street performers. It was, it was, it's an immensely detailed world mm -hmm. and the costuming is perhaps the most immensely detailed element of the whole thing. I would agree. Absolutely. Um, and as we approach 2049, costumes are different this time around. Not so much in we're seeing less people. Um, the most we see are in the food court and the the replicant prostitutes or whatever they're called, sex workers. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would agree. I think some of the brilliance of the aesthetics of 2019 are the details of everyone on those streets and how it contributes to this lush, full, fully developed world. And there's something we've talked about quite a bit in talking about the two films and how they relate to each other is that in the first film, humanity is jammed together and still trying to retain some sense of individuality, still having some sense of diverse cultural stuff, trying to still show who they are, even though they're in this very complex polyglot world, right? People still dress like they come from somewhere else or they come to here with an idea of like their identity or who they want to be. Mm -hmm. They want to be seen ultimately. They don't want to blend in. Uh, I mean, obviously there's exceptions to that, but even if you just look in the background at, you know, food vendors and the noodle carts and things like they, they look, they look fully realized as, as people in 2049, of course, you know, the, we, well, I mean, we'll talk individually about the costumes quite a bit, but there's much more of a sense of going under the radar of just sort of trying to get out of the pollution as quickly as you can. So the costumes for background characters are way more brutal, which is the the word that, you know, Dennis Gassner and, and Denis Villeneuve and uh, Rene April, um, th that they were guided by this idea of, of brutal environment. So most of the costumes in 2049 are in service of that. If you're not one of the people inside you know, the Wallace headquarters, you're basically just protecting yourself from environmental fallout. Mm -hmm. And that sense of trying to celebrate diversity or trying to celebrate this, you know, trying to hold on to some sense of joy is is really gone. It's a sense of hiding. It's a sense of trying to get out of the smog, you know? Yeah. And the atmosphere is one minute it's raining, the next minute it's snowing. So, and like you see, there's a scene where Mariette gets out of the cab or whatever and get goes to Kay's apartment and it's snowing like crazy, but essentially 20 minutes earlier, it was raining and warmer. Um, so it's, there's, there's very little, the climate is all over the place. There's no predicting it. It's just, it's gone haywire. So they need a, they need clothes to kind of adapt to that. I don't really know if Mariette was wearing those appropriate clothes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting to see 
because climate will inform costume choices. Climate will inform what you're going to wear. So the the costume designers are going to have to approach the world of 2049 like, okay, here we are. It's snowing now. It's a different world. It's a harsher world. What are people wearing? Um, and typically, people tend to be a little bit more conservative after a really a major catastrophe like the blackout um, and the famine. And I think we see a lot of that. Yeah. And we see a lot of people who have sort of given up, I think. You know, for example, that sequence you're talking about with Mariette, Renee April, the costume designer, had did an interview about this, which was which was really good. And that was an intentional decision that they made to make her look sad, right? She's wearing these layers of plastic and fur and all of these like just gross, non-insulated materials, and she's wet and she just sort of like can't do anything about it. So to their way of thinking, it, you know, potentially a replicant wouldn't feel as cold. And so that's part of why, you know, that which is of course just sort of extrapolation. But um that was part of why it wouldn't matter as much what she was actually wearing. But at the same time, she looks defeated in that moment. She looks like crap, you know? And and I think that's a, a big a big part of it, you know? As the movie progresses, Kay's coat begins to fall apart. Just like you, know, you were talking about in the previous episode, Rachel's outfit changes quite a bit through the movie. Mm-hmm. A lot of the characters undergo costume arcs through this film. And I think that's uh, a, a kind of a key to understanding it and understanding how these characters interact with this harsh environment that they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say one other thing, just referencing something that came up in the previous episode. There was, I remember, it's funny, you, I had forgotten about this until you brought it up, but there was a lot of controversy early, early on when the blue and teal poster came out and we saw Deckard wearing what looked like a Hanes, you know, undie t-shirt on. Mm-hmm. And, we, and I remember personally being like, what the fuck is that costume? And then of course, as you see it in the movie and you realize the reasons why he's wearing something like that, it starts to kind of click and you start to understand the motivations behind it. Um, but there's a sense of, uh, of, of giving up, like who the hell does he have to impress? He's not trying to look cool. He's trying to wear something that will last for a long time. And sometimes like a hearty t-shirt is what's going to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so I, I'm, I just wanted to reference that because I had actually forgotten that that was a controversy at one point, but it, but it was. Yeah. Yeah. We briefly talked about Deckard's appearance, but, the reality is Deckard was as plain in 2019. He was wearing a suit and tie. His coat was a little bit different, but he wasn't like wearing this futuristic looking. He was just ordinary. And we see him again in 2049. He's ordinary. He's just nothing's very interesting what he's wearing. But it, for whatever reason, it stuck out to people more. But I also think the Deckard, it really represented the Deckard that we're meeting in 2049 he's stripped down even more he is without the love of his life he's without his child he's by himself in the middle of nowhere he has nothing and his costume really reflects that reflects that he doesn't care like um it's a very warm environment so he's not wearing a ton of clothes um keep you know he's wearing clothes that keep him cooler um and it's just essentially a jeans and jeans and a shirt um but it, it does stick out a little bit but I think it should have. Um, but I think, yeah, it was a very controversial, for a lot of people, it was a very controversial decision to dress him that way. He reads. That's good. Me too. How much else to do around here at night anymore? Huh. Many is the night I dream of cheese. And yet, as you're saying, and as you said in the previous episode, it makes 
complete sense because at the at its heart, Blade Runner is not about looking like the future. At its heart, it's what would people look like and what would be what would they be wearing in this environment. So not trying to look futuristic. They're not wearing you know Mobius still suits. They're not wearing these you know fantastical designs. They're wearing clothes that people wear when they go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the first film, of course, Deckard. Although you're right, he has this kind of noir inflected very. Sp- bare style you know at least he has little flare pieces for himself like he has the you know sometimes he's wearing this very bright shirt that's covered by the coat so you don't even really notice um but in this movie he's not wearing any of that and it reminds me a lot of a conversation i was having with micah this weekend uh where you know we were just so tired and you know after because the kids of course have been home from school and it's, it's just been it's just been a and she's home from work it's been a kind of an intense couple of weeks and this is coming on the heels of two years of intense weeks right mm-hmm. and i was talking about how uh you know, I like stopped even pretending like I wasn't wearing sweatpants all the time. You know, like I, I, I'm not even like bothering switching out which ones I'm wearing. I'm like, if these sweatpants are clean at this point, I'm just going to wear that for my work day because uh, like nobody gives a shit anymore. Like I've just been at home for so long now that like I went, I remember in the beginning of this, I was dressing up nicer than I would normally dress up to go into the office in the city. You know, I was like taking it very seriously. I was like, I'm going to, you know, put a tie on sometimes to feel really motivated. Yeah. But we talked about that. And now I'm like, is this shirt clean? I don't even remember. I don't fucking know. I don't even fold it, but whatever. (laughs) It doesn't smell bad. Right. And that's reflective of, of, I think Deckard's, you know, in a a more extreme way, what he's going through. Like he's, of course he's wearing a Hanes style shirt because like who cares like he's just trying to cover himself a little bit so that he doesn't get cold when he's laying in this abandoned hotel in the middle of the night right there's a sense of of ultimate utility behind it and i think that is you know important to note but i also think there's a, a big part of why people had an issue with that initially was because it didn't project the trench coat silhouette that has become the iconic visual i mean Deckard's trench coat and Rachel's shoulder pads to me are like the two sort of iconic costume designs across popular culture from the original film. Mm-hmm. And in this one, we get, you know, just a guy who looks like he's in his late middle ages with a t-shirt on. And the trench coat, of course, goes to Kay, although in Kay's case, it's no longer a trench coat. It's this laminated faux fur coat, which... um is a lot more rough and tumble, but it still conveys the same kind of a message. But I think that was part of it. It was shocking for people to see Deckard's transformation, you know? And I think also in terms of who Deckard is when Kay meets him, Deckard's a senior citizen, essentially. And oftentimes people, as they get older, they wear what's comfortable for them. They don't They don't care about latest trends unless, the, you know, unless they're going to a big gala or dinner or whatever and they have to wear a tux. Deckard is on his own by himself in a hollowed out Las Vegas. He's going to be comfortable. Um, but yeah, and it's funny as we talk about this, at least as I talk about this, I'm really talking about it hearing the detractors not like what Deckard's wearing, not feeling like it's the Deckard that they know, which I also think because it isn't the Deckard you know. This is a very yeah. affected Deckard, more affected than the first film. And his dress reflects that and his life reflects that this is a deckard who's before deckard in 2019 he was just kind of coasting through life we've been through that conversation before this is a deckard who's given up those are two different people um and he if you look at him he looks a little foreign um his body language the way he talks is foreign he doesn't even have that rounded warmth that even a pre a pre Rachel Deckard has. Um, this is a Deckard who has like is emotionally severed, um, and 
We feel that when we see him. Where, where is he? Where is he? We love him. Why does he look like this? It is a, that reaction is exactly the way we should be reacting to him. And his costume just screams that to me. I agree. And I think it's largely mirrored in the way that, you know, the Ellen Ripley was received in Alien 3 initially, which is like, yes. why is she bald wearing a potato sack? Like, you know, what, what is this? What have you done to Ellen Ripley? It's the same thing. It's the sense of discomfort with mm-hmm. loss and the sense of, you know, as movie fans, we build ourselves up and we think these characters are doing these amazing things and we think they're going to be okay. And then when we're confronted by the reality that they're not, that life is complicated for them too, if they're treated as real people, it's hard because that means life is complicated for us. You know, that mm-hmm. means that like our best days might be behind us and we might not have realized it yet. And that's something mm-hmm. that I think is hard for anybody to come to terms with. But especially when you have a character like Deckard who goes through such an arc in the first movie and emerges as this, you know, heroic figure taking action and saving Rachel and escaping. Like, you know, we we are, we are wanting him to have gone on to become the leader of the resistance movement or we're wanting him to have gone on to become, you know, the founder of an anti-Blade Runner task force or something. We want him to go into this brave, imagined future. We don't want him to be hiding for decades, you know, because that means that that entire time we were daydreaming about his future, we were wrong, Right. And that's a long time to daydream. If you go three and a half decades and you find out that whole time this guy was just in a t-shirt in a bunker somewhere, you know, in this devastated nuclear area, it sucks. And I think that great filmmakers like Denis Villeneuve understand that and they embrace that. And I think that that's why even though there are such aesthetic deviations in 2049, they're largely received well by fandom is because there's like real narrative reasons behind it. Yeah, agreed. Um, and it's funny because now my my instinct is to want to like talk about like why these stories are so why it, the story is so appropriate for Deckard, even though some people were like, no, that's some people react to the Deckard in twenty forty nine the same way some people react to Ripley. Like, what are you doing with this character? Um, but that's not why we're here. <laughs> um, but I think one one character that we did not touch on in the first entry into the series is love. How we meet her, how she looks, how her look changes over the course of the film, the coat she's wearing when she's going, she ends up going to Kay's apartment. Her, she's deconstructed similarly uh, to Rachel in the first film in terms of what she's wearing, that bright white beautiful skirt that she's wearing or dress and her hair pulled back when we meet. And we've talked about this a little bit in episodes past when we meet um, love, she's very Rachel like her hair is pulled back. She's definitely like a, a conceptualized Rachel. She's a replicant. We know this. She's wearing all white as opposed to essentially black, which is what Rachel was wearing. She meets Kay the same way Rachel meets Deckard. Um, and she's pulled, she's just pulled together. She just looks, she's wearing these high heels. She's just flawless. And then her costume goes over. Her costume starts changing as the story starts widening and she starts like, okay, you need to go after this. You need to go after it. And then it's like, her costume starts falling apart a little bit because she is not really falling apart, but she's becoming, she's not this like pretty secretary that we first meet. She starts turning. She becomes very different than Rachel. She becomes this killer. Essentially she becomes her own. She's what's interesting is love is a blade runner in some ways. 
Love is dispatched to do what Kay is doing. And her costume is really like, gets darker. It gets harsher. It gets, her hair changes when she, her hair comes down. You know, first it's all up, and then we see her again, and it's this ponytail. And it's disconcerting, because ponytails are usually uncute, you know, like, with little girls, and they're cute. And there's a little girl quality to her, which makes her being a killer even stranger. Gotta be a stranger. And then her costume, like, once you see her in that coat, and that coat has, like, sections for arms, so she looks like a doll. Very, very interesting. There's... Literally layers to her care to her costuming. Yeah, and her progression, you're absolutely right, is so interesting to watch because she fights against it a little bit early on. Uh, I, I want to go back to the childlike quality that you're talking about because I, I really think that that's something that I, I sort of forget about because I'm so used to it now. But the first time I watched the movie, I was really struck by how uncomfortable her childlikeness came across to me, right? Mm-hmm. With, with the crying, the seeming naive, the kind of weird flirtation trying on things she comes across like she's like a preteen girl or something right Mm -hmm. a little bit mentally which juxtaposed with the way that she acts is really shocking because she is so professional in the beginning and so you know adult and then she becomes so scary as the movie goes on but the first time we see her of course we're confronted with an angel an, an angelic you know vision which is which is what wallace deems her from the very start she is his angel who becomes his avenging angel right who becomes his right hand but for the beginning of the movie she's in this beautiful white monochromatic outfit that for the first you know couple of frames that we see her i agree feels almost like a ripoff of the rachel look which obviously it's supposed to because we're supposed to be conjuring back this idea of the public facing you know that that like she's this you know perfect projected image that is representing the newest cutting edge technology that this corporation has in the same way that rachel was for tyrell when she uh comes out and we see the light in this beautiful building playing against her features and her very stark haircut and this white outfit it just feels she feels just just immaculate just just this like vision of beauty right mm-hmm. um and then as we watch her progress through the movie like when she kills coco she's looking a little bit rougher her hair's down by that point and then by the end of the film she's dressed in black she's dressed mm-hmm. like a like a like she's there to kill or to infiltrate which of course is who she was the whole time but there's also wonderful moments you know where, for example when she's you know a remote operating the missiles in the in the uh in the junkyard or the trash uh, mesa she is getting her nails painted right with that like holographic nail paint so she's also showing us some elements of her costuming as we go along we have the you know the smart the google glass smart mm-hmm. glasses that she's wearing right we have uh she's a character who gives us a lot of insights into technology and costuming in the movie because by virtue of her role she should be she should be wearing the latest things. She should be having access to these, you know, wealthy accoutrements that she can impress clients with, right? When she has that client in the beginning over the drinking tea, uh, this beautiful set, you know, she's uh, she's projecting this like incredibly put together image similar to how Rachel is shown to us in the first movie. Mm-hmm. And of course, then she's also the one who reveals Rachel's voice for the first time when they go into the memory, you know, basement and we get to replay that scene and uh and it's and it's jarring because we have this rachel like character showing us who rachel actually was and reminding us of who sean young was in the first movie uh so yeah so love plays with a lot of really interesting things i think throughout the film and uh and i think it's one of the many reasons why she's become very iconic oh absolutely um and then of course the last she goes from skirts to or dresses to pants 
and then the coat and her stance is different too. Like, remember when we first see her after we, after Kay leaves Wallace's and then you see her walk up to where Neander is and she's just standing there like a statue, pristine, quiet. And you see some tears and she's just, she's terrified of Neander, terrified of him. Um, but she's also his servant as well. Um, and she's just this crystalline perfection. And then she, and it's interesting too, because you point out that when she's getting her nails done and you could tell she's kind of done similar things to this before where Neander has sent her after things and it's not that big a deal. And she can do this in her sleep, essentially. She can get her nails done and take someone out or whatever. And then it gets harder for her. Um, she over underestimates Kay. And so then her costume starts like it's she stops being as relaxed as she was like and then she's like okay now i gotta go there now i gotta take things into my own hands um yeah it's it's fascinating to see that journey in her costuming for sure yeah and in her performance too i think it's it's important to remember how much of this is conveyed through sylvia's you know just physical mannerisms it's Mm -hmm. a really layered nuanced role um another layered nuanced role with a shitload of costume decisions behind it is joy Mm -hmm. uh who i think you know in terms of flashiness is probably the most flashy costuming character in the whole thing because she goes through so many physical transformations, right? To, you know, she goes from like being sort of a housewife in the fifties to looking like Marilyn Monroe, to looking like that, you know, that anime character dancing in the street Mm -hmm. to looking like this giant, terrifying purple monster uh, to looking like she's wrapped in this plastic that has become, I think her iconic look. Mm-hmm. It's the one that's on the Funko Pop, and it's the one that most people portray her wearing because, of course, it occur. It, you know, it's what she's wearing during the emotional catharsis of that character when she gets mm-hmm. to leave for the first time, and blah 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 blah. But uh, you know, again, it would be nothing if Ana Darmas hadn't done this incredible performance underneath it to tie the whole thing together. That being said, though, I, I think that um, you know, it, it's interesting because it gives her character gives us glimpses into this, you know potentially identical reality that, you know, we always talk about Blade Runner happening in a parallel timeline, a a parallel version of our own existence. Um, But we see these historical echoes in her character, like that 50s housewife character, that she feels recognizably from our actual world, as does the fact that she's holding an actual book by Nabokov, as does the fact that that book by Nabokov is, is being used, you know, for psychological conditioning by the LAPD. So, it's another there was an I don't actually remember what it was but on a re, another recent episode I I realized that we were getting something in 2049 that was a literal callback to our actual world I'm sure it'll hit me at some point but that's another key to that where Denis is saying like things are closer to our actual reality than you than you realize and mm-hmm. we're seeing these imagined past you know archetypes in this universe that look recognizably like archetypes of the past from our own mm-hmm mm-hmm Yeah. Yeah. It's, there is, there is so much going on. I mean, I I think to your point with joy, like, yeah, her joys will always be a fascinating discussion as we've had many of, we haven't really had a full on joy discussion in a couple of years at least. Um, but in terms of her costuming, her, 
going in, you know, housewife, like you said, 60s, and then that black, that black dress with the the spaghetti straps like of the shirt underneath it and um she's essentially in those moments what do you want what are you looking for who should i be for you right now um with those quick costume changes um and then when we finally see her in that iconic one it's almost like well this is what i want i don't know i don't know for sure but she's has a little bit more agency um, but it's also a little bit more protected. She seems more protected, even though she doesn't need to be because she's a, a simulation. Um, it's interesting how we perceive her costume or what she's wearing because she's not really wearing anything. It's, it's data that's being filtered through her. Is this what you want to see? Is this what you want to hear? Is this good enough for you? And then when she's with Kay in the car, she looks like she's going on a trip. She doesn't need to. It doesn't matter. But she's doing it for Kay's, Kay's peace of mind that she's got her coat on. And she's, I think she's wearing like thigh high boots or I don't really know, like a short skirt. Um, and I think she stays in that costume until her, her demise or until she's erased or whatever. Um, but yeah, Joy, Joy is a psychological. Yeah. I don't even know how to process her because. Is what we're seeing, are we seeing it because this is how we want to see women, beautiful women dressed? What are these decisions? I would imagine so. And she knows what Kay likes. She's seen what Kay's responded to. And so what she's wearing, he likes. And um, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. But it's also fascinating because I think you're absolutely right that she decides what she wears when she once once she leaves the tether that she's been attached to the entire mm-hmm. time. There's there's a sense of uh, of like fulfilling her own destiny there, which is completely simulated. So who knows how real any of it actually is? But you know, there's her catchphrase, of course, is everything you want to see, everything you want to hear, right? Um, that feels to me like it's no longer what anybody else wants to see or hear. It's what she wants. You know, th- that that's the way that it reads to me, at least as somebody who's invested in that character for whatever reason as being real, quote unquote. Uh, it seems like because it's not revealing and it's not it's it's just like this quirky outfit that she that she likes, you know, that she's doing for her little trip that she gets to do, which is the first trip she ever gets to take. But also you know, I, I, it's not accidental that it resembles a raincoat because to me, joy is very much associated with rain, not, yes. not just because of the, you know, those pivotal early scenes on the rooftop or, or because, you know, that's the title of the, of her, you know, music on the soundtrack. Um, but because she seemed to have her most precious moment of all time being rained on, which is a really beautiful thing, and being able to notice the rain on her skin and being able to be outside to experience that. So getting to wear this very light raincoat, to me, is is referencing as an audience that moment. And ref- you know, it, you're not going to wear a raincoat if you don't want to be outside in the rain, right? Like you wear a raincoat to be protected while you're in rain. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, it, to, to me, it reads as like, oh, I hope it rains today so I can go outside and play in it, you know? Um, and then there's and of course the- it does rain, but in a different way. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the idea of the coat being see-through as well. Um, a lot of raincoats aren't see-through, um, but she's wearing this yellow see-through raincoat. And the idea that we can see through it to her, to what she is underneath and the psychology there. What are we being told about that costume that we can see through it? Can we see through her? What is she? Who is she? Um 
Like, it's almost like we can see, okay, yes, she's wearing a shirt underneath it, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I haven't fully processed why her coat is see-through, but there's something happening there with that. There's something that we're being told, but I don't know what that is right at the moment. Um, I mean, Joy, I've pivoted with Joy several times, as you know, um, and I still don't really understand or I don't, I, I think I've come to the conclusion recently that she is wholly a computer simulation. There's nothing authentic about her. Um, she is built to please. She is a, a call girl that just doesn't have sex, have sex. That's what she's built for. Um, and that's what we see. Everything we see, we want to see. We love her because we're, she knows enough about us to make us love her. Like, and that's why people respond to her that way, because that's what her job is. And I think that's what her costume says, too. Like, people love Joy because that's why she's here, right? You know? Um, and every costume we see her in is gorgeous. She's gorgeous in it. Of course she is, because that's what we want to see. We want to see a beautiful woman. But we look at love. Love is really beautiful in the beginning. I mean, not, you know, Sylvia is a beautiful woman, of course, but love gets terrifying, Joy never gets terrifying. Joy never looks terrifying. She always looks sad or oh, I love you. Kate. Like all the, the damsel, the, you know, she hits all of those, like, let's save her, protect her. What about joy? Of course, you know, because she knows or the programmers know humans want to care. Humans want to save. Humans want to protect. Um, so Joy's never going to cross into the, that, that over that line with her costuming, with who she is of, being anything more than just like this, oh, what about that beautiful woman? Why, yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. So I act I'm harsher on Joy than I used to be. Yeah, well, it's got sort of the way you've always felt about her, I, I think. Yeah, Is it not? I, yeah, I, yeah, but I feel like I'm more concise about it. I feel like I'm more, I'm more resolute about her, who she is. And I think it's a mm. pretty delineated, she's a very delineated character. I don't think there's any gray for her. I don't, I, I, I am... I am absolutely 100% confident in my opinions that Joy is nothing more than a computer program. That's it. Well, we'll need to have a fuller conversation about it because I have a lot more to say than I'm okay. not going to say because we, <laughs> we got to move on with the costumes. Uh, but I mean, to me, of course, like she's actualized by the love that Kay feels for her. And that says deeper things, I think, about love and connection than whether something's real or not. I, th- I think she's his connection to something worth fighting for. So like mm-hmm. in that way, you know, I, I think she's entirely real within his heart. And if that means that she's not real in the physical world or if she's everything's just programmed. So is this to be. <laughs> I'm holding. Yeah, but 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 if but if that but if that gave you something worth fighting for, then I would think that that would be a real connection. Which of course is a a movie that it's something that comes up in films a lot. It comes up in her. It comes up in other you know explorations of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's 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 a much larger topic, I think. But uh, but vis a vis the costuming, you know, it's worth remembering that when she puts the raincoat on, she's wearing a turtleneck underneath that. She's Mm -hmm. completely covered up, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is which is it? So so again, it feels to me like she has some agency over what she's wearing in that moment, but maybe not. I mean, at the, it's also worth remembering that in the beginning, when Kay's selecting who what she's going to look like, right? She, he even selects her ethnicity and says Cuban, which is interesting because you know I'm kind of under the assumption that Cuba isn't really a place anymore within this universe, and yet you know it's in it's interesting. It, it's it's interesting the the clues that she gives us into 
what else is out there or what Mm -hmm. else was out there before the events of 2049 or the events of 2019 for that matter. And I think, uh, she's, she's just a really interesting vector into so many things. So yeah, obviously we have to, she's our number one requested episode by far. So we need to come back to that at some point. Yeah. Um, but just sort of moving along through the costumes, another sort of iconic look I think is, is Wallace in this film. Oh yes. Uh, and his is to me probably the biggest deviation from other Blade Runner costuming that we get. Not only because he has this, you know, pseudo priest robe kimono on, but because his feels more non more directly non Blade Runner than probably any other outfit in its austerity, in its recognizability, in its uh just sort of monochromatic blackness. It's very it's very much not in my experience, what I would assume a Blade Runner costume, you know, a Blade Runner universe costume would be. But what, what do you think about that one? Yeah. Um, in terms of that specific costume? Yeah, that look. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's very, it plays into this man of peace, this wise man, um, you know, the East, Asian culture, um, rock garden, Zen. Um, and his speech, of course, reflects that a little bit when, in fact, that's not really who he is, but that's who he wants to get across that I am. I am the Dalai Lama. I am a Buddhist monk. Not that he's saying that, but his costume's saying that. And there's a, an aura of peace about him for sure, but it's also really dangerous too. He's, you know, and I think his costume is, is both priest and martial artist he's a he like what are we looking at are we looking at someone who is more akin to a priest or a god or a fighter or a ninja or or someone who can tear you limb from limb um but i think what's key about that costume is it invokes power this man has power and you can't really decide why is he wearing that um but he knows um that everything about him makes an impression on people. And he chooses, I think he absolutely chooses what he's wearing to, to back up that idea that I need to present myself in a way as a God presents himself. I need to present myself in a way that, that demands attention from either my angels or, you know, state representatives, country representatives, or whoever. Um, yeah, I love that costume, but at the same time, it's kind of scary too. It is. It reminds me a lot of Steve Jobs and how in the early 2000s, he decided to just wear black turtlenecks mm-hmm. right by that one designer. Uh, this idea of you reach a certain point where you are so wealthy that you could basically wear anything that you would ever want to wear. So like the, the, the analysis paralysis around that must be greater, you know, like for, for you or I, it's not like, you know, we don't have clothes to wear, but I'm not, I can't like go into Saks Fifth Avenue and just take as many clothes as I want, you know, like whatever, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a few new things every season, you know, and donate a few old things. But when you have unlimited wealth and, and Neander Wallace, even compared to Tyrell in the first movie has essentially limitless wealth. Um, you know, you can wear anything. So, so instead of wearing anything, Steve Jobs and Wallace, in my opinion, both decided to just wear one thing that they that makes them feel like themselves and wear that as their projection of self. So, uh, so that so that's one thing behind it. But the other thing, of course, is just this really interesting visual cue that we get where Wallace is. You know, I mean, we we never see him doing any of these other functions. That's what's funny too, and something that's problematic about Black Lotus, I think, a little bit. 
And in Blade in 2049, you know, we know that he must be doing stuff because he is, you know, the head of this empire and because he just arrives back at one point in the beginning. And, we're, you know, there's this sort of imagined life outside, but we see none of that, right? We see nothing but this hermetic monk figure in this cathedral who's blind, wearing essentially a kimono uh, on a platform surrounded by water. Like, that's his job, right? And then he just, you know, murders a newborn replicant. And that's like pretty much it. Uh, so what what's conveyed by that is this really interesting sense of asceticism, of asceticism and simplicity, mm-hmm. almost like the you know barefoot monk movement, right? Like there's something about there's something about hit the way that he presents himself that I think you're right is sort of threatening because you're like surely he is working on a lot of things. He has this empire. There's a lot going on. Why can't we see any of it? Like why is it all? Why is it? gone and why are we only confronted with a man in basically a bathrobe like like what what else is there speaking of bathrobes <clears throat> you know i have to talk about my buddy tyrell and his bathrobe from the first movie which is my favorite costume in all of uh, robin bunts listen up <laughs> <laughs> um i feel like uh it's interesting you know because of course the closest corollary we have to wallace in the first movie is eldon tyrell mm-hmm. and tyrell's outfits are fantastic like he is a fantastic dresser right not just uh with his actual clothes but with those huge glasses that he wears and with the jewelry and with the way that he presents himself as this like suave, you know, Howard Hughes style mm-hmm. CEO. Actually, Howard Hughes is a good corollary for, for both of them, I think, because young Howard Hughes was Eldon Tyrell in, in a sense, right? He was this like, you know, this person who was perceived as being glamorous and, you know, dating movie stars and dressing beautifully and being at premieres of things and doing whatever, a world conqueror, right? And then after he conquered the world, right, after like his film studio, you know, fell apart and after the aviation stuff and the hospital and all these other huge endeavors that he did, you know, gave way to this horrible anxiety disorder that he had and he lost his mind quite a bit and and was surrounded by people who facilitated that. He dressed like, uh, you know, very, very differently and he became sealed from the world because he was, you know, embarrassing for, for himself and for his estate. Similarly, it's almost like Wallace at one point was a Tyrellian figure and that he was this man about town. And then as things changed and as he lost his vision and as he sort of walled himself in, he became something very different, something um, in the darkness. And I think that is a fascinating lens to look at that character through. Mm-hmm. But also, last thing I'll say about it is I think that his clothing represents his hubris in a way too, because he's dressing in a way that comes across like he's this wise man, Right. And uh, he hasn't done anything to earn that. He's he's done, you know, he's an incredibly wealthy person who has saved the world, but he, his actions clearly portray someone who hasn't actually found humanity yet within himself. And so there's this wonderful sense of uh, of trying to project something that I don't think he actually is. Yeah. But I think also, if you think you're a god, which I think... I believe that Ty, uh, that Wallace does. He believes he himself a god, and in some ways he is. He saved humanity in terms of famine. Um, what does God do? One God works. God works effortlessly. So there's an I, his surroundings and how he moves within those surroundings. Certainly within his costuming, it's effortless almost, and that's also what makes God scary too. Um, makes God a little bit malevolent, even though. I mean, the, the discussion about what God is or isn't or it existence or not is a completely separate idea. Um, I feel like what Wallace is trying to convey with his persona, with what he's wearing, is a sense of effortlessness. Um, there's that quote 
the lion doesn't care what the sheep think or something like that. I don't know the exact quote, but it's essentially like a lion doesn't care about the feelings of zebras or whatever. I don't know. Um, and I think Wallace is a lion and he doesn't, he is, but I, I also think he thinks he's earned it. Um, so if people have been following Black Lotus, I don't really connect the two, the film and the, and the series, but if you do, he had a father. Um, who owned Wallace before and Wallace Industries is essentially then bestowed upon him. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know exactly. Like, let's just say that that's canon. Um, and you're born into, it's this nepotistic life that you've been born into where it's effortlessly you've been given power. And Wallace does have that, I, that disconnection from, other people, even in that, that short film for Nexus Dawn, he comes in and he's in a suit, but he's talking to those people like he's not even talking to them. He's talking to those people the way the God in the Old Testament talks to its, its people. Like, okay, we'll talk to you right now. Um, I need to watch that again. I think that his whole persona and that is really really fantastic but he's dressed in a suit he's a little bit more relatable a little bit but his words aren't um but again he sees himself as a god and i think god will always look good and god will always almost move effortlessly within people he thinks are peasants at least a a malevolent god a god who isn't really again i don't I don't want to get too far into the discussion about God, but in terms of like how Wallace is dressed, how he presents himself, he presents himself as better than everyone else. Um, and it comes off in, he's got a long beard. He's not, you know, he's not, he's just different. He looks different. His eyes are different. You don't even know if he's looking at you even. And I think that's a costume choice too, to have him blind, to have those things in his eyes. So yes, he's blind, but he can still see with the right technology attached to him. Um, so is God looking at you or not? You don't know. So that makes God even more uncomfortable, right? That's what makes Wallace more uncomfortable is that you don't know if he's really looking at you. What are, what's going on behind those lenses? Is he blind? Is he not? And how is, but so what you can see of him is kind of relaxing. Certainly when he's in that kimono like outfit and in the suit, the suit, everyone wears a suit. He looks really extra good in that suit. Um, but what are God's intentions? And it, it's confusing because what's going on up here is different than what's going on in his body. Um, and I think that's Wallace, Wallace has an allure. I, I, I don't know about for you, but certainly for me, like I, I'm, I'm attracted to Wallace in terms of, you know, one of the first things he says, I love that line. You remember, you know, when the film came out and we were talking about it, like Jamie loves that line, like we will storm Eden and retake her. There's something beguiling about those words. Like I want to know this guy more. I want to hear that speech more, but that's also like, it's also, he's also a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a wolf using the, 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 the language of God. And I think it's beautifully represented in his, his outfits. 
Yeah, I think I think there's a, a cultivated uh, incomprehensibility to him, which is part of that effortlessness that you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. He reminds me of you know Old Testament depictions of angels being concentric circles of eyes, you know, descending on people and driving them insane, right? Mm-hmm. There's this, there's this, like, how could he possibly be running an empire if he's just alone, blind in this cave? And then those moments where the barracudas look at love, and he, and you know Wallace isn't even facing the same direction. There again, it's that same that same sense of like he's more than human. He's mm-hmm. you know, which of course goes to the heart of what Blade Runner is. Uh, I want to you know, be conscious of time because we do have another recording coming up for our other show, but also because I want to save some of this for when we get our other two yes. or three or four back on. And we and still sort need of to talk make, about maybe gas make this, and a bunch of other people. Oh, yeah. And we still need to talk about K. We didn't even talk about K yet, let alone a lot of the other, you know, there's a lot of characters in both films to talk about. So I think, uh, you know, we'll table that for our next episode and we'll be back uh, with a lot more to say about it. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Be sure to tune in next time as we continue to expand upon the costumes and the world of Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. If you are not a patron of ours, please. And if you're interested in it, please go to bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Sign up for $4 a month. All of your your patronage goes back into the show. Hosting fees, live events, mini live events, audio dramas, all sorts of things. Um, so thanks for listening. And just before we go, we've gotten some new patrons in the last couple of weeks that we want to give a special shout out to. So thank you, Michael Scudieri. Thank you, Austin Williamson. Thank you, Retronauts Does Adventure Game Episodes, which is also another podcast you might want to check out. And thank you to Dan Young. Uh, And also thank you to all the other patrons who have been supporting us. You are amazing. And we hope that you can hear the love as we record these episodes and send them your way. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you, guys. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.